Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Cordera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are meant to be fun, lighthearted, and, well, frankly, opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today we're going to pick up the topic of MLOps once again. As we talked about in the last podcast, there's a lot of engineering challenges when you get these models into production. If these aren't done right, it leads to cascading effects downstream, impacting huge portions of your organization. As we mentioned, Google researchers call machine learning the high-interest credit card of technical debt. So today we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to dig more into this. Joining me as always is Jason Goth, our CTO, who is about to go on vacation later today. So we'll try and keep it short, Jason. Last time we talked about this, Jason, and you said you should only be doing these things twice ever. That's right. You know, do it once and then automate it the second time. So let's talk about automation. And to help talk about that topic specifically and the sol- some solutioning that Credera has done around this space to help orgs overcome that technical debt is Amanda. Amanda Ashenbrenner is a senior architect here at Credera, helping our internal teams building the competencies around machine learning ops. She's running cross-functional teams to help productionize ML at massive scale for several of our clients. Historically came up as a software engineer, been focusing a lot on data as of recent. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Excited to be here and talk about what our team's been working on. Awesome. Well, to kick things off here, tell me, when clients come to us, come to you in particular, talking about ML ops, Maybe they don't even use those words. They're really saying something else entirely. What are they saying and what are some of the common problems that they're trying to solve as they bring up this topic? I'd answer that with, it depends on the organization's maturity. Some folks are just looking for education to understand what the definition of MLOps is. Some are just very excited to get into the world of machine learning and start their journey there. Others are looking to teach their data scientists or hire data scientists to ensure that when they release to production, they're doing it in a scalable and robust manner. And lastly, you know, some of our more mature clients are coming to us looking for tool evaluations, which tool should I use, an open source tool here or paid third party source or, or build it my own, right? So we walk them through some of those um, trade-offs to, to which option that they can pick. Well, that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that makes you and Jason actually both uniquely qualified into the next question is you both came up through traditional software development. You spent a lot of your career thinking about how do I design these systems at scale? In order to get into this, as, as you've both moved more into data, I want to ask you this question. How do developers think about data versus data scientists, data engineers think about data and what challenges does that ultimately create? My answer is, they rarely think about it at all, but no, you know, they, they think of it t- typically at a row level, right? Like it's a customer and I, you know, I have to either fetch the customer and, and display it or gather the customer data and save it somewhere. You know, they don't probably look at data as an entire ecosystem if you want to think of it that way. And I think that's obviously necessary to get, you know, things that they need to get done completed. But as companies look to use more data, across for more broad purposes like machine learning and it has to be more integrated. Amanda, you can probably talk more about what that different view that the data engineers and data scientists bring. But I think to working together, I think is what is going to have to happen to really be able to bridge that gap. But I don't know, Amanda, what do you think? 
Absolutely. I think from the data scientist perspective, right, these are inputs or features to my model. Um, and I want as much behavioral data from what that user or customer is doing and as much transactional data that I can get my hand on, which is traditionally not accessible to me, right? It's stored in a transactional database. I work off of a warehouse or a data lake. Um, and so it's bringing that data together and allowing me to experiment with it. What it means for the development lifecycle now when we're working with cross-functional teams, software engineers, data scientists, data engineers, some call ML engineers when they're working in this space, um, but it's the same skill set, just, just working in the application of machine learning, you know, is we actually have to think about in the development process, there's stories to create new events on the front end and capture some of that behavioral data and make sure it gets fed through to the data lake so that we can actually use it in our model development. That's a good point because a lot of times that behavioral data is captured elsewhere, right? We may write a website, build functionality, tracking user behavior, that kind of stuff tends to be done through some type of, uh, you know, user tracking, Omniture, Google Analytics, some, something like that. So it's not that that data doesn't exist, but we don't necessarily think about it. And we can add to that, you know, with custom events, those type things. And so if we work together and say, well, look, I really need to see this type of data, this type of data, and this type of data, we can make sure that we get that. But it's oftentimes, you know, we're, we're focused on what we need to do to get the application up and running, as opposed to providing all the data to the back end. So that's where I, I again, think that bringing those folks as essentially end users of the system, right? I need the data out of the system, that's a user, and capturing those as real requirements is, is the way we're gonna have to you know, make sure that we capture that data. Because the developers are just not going to know, you know off, the, off the cuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that that leads to the question next, which is really, if this requires a different way of training developers to think in some sense, and it requires a bunch of front end, requires a bunch of new logging and requirements, and tickets and, you know, features, if you will, that you're gonna have to build into that product plan. When is the right time to start thinking about MLOps? I would argue immediately. Earlier, we asked what are some of the challenges or what are, what are clients coming to you for, they're typically coming with a product they want to build or a, you know, interest in machine learning or both. And so our first interaction is, is with the product team, typically mm -hmm. talking about, Hey, we want to build this. How do we do it? Well, the right way to make sure that you don't have a model that serves up, for example, offers to customers for, for certain seasonal products, right? Um, is to build into your product development, leverage machine learning for the model, and then build the right pipeline from the get-go. Like Jason said, build it once, then automate it. And it's challenging to convince customers, hey, like here's this other body of work you need to do to get it out, off the ground. Well, we can cut it out and get it out there. And what I what we focus on is it's not the you know the first iteration that we're talking about how much cost this is bringing to you right it's the second and the third and the fourth that your time to prediction is much faster if you invest on the front end in this pipeline and if you teach your data scientists how to build that pipeline how to respond to changes in model drift etc right and set it up from the get-go to automatically respond to that and alert your engineers where, where necessary. Yeah, I think that's right, Amanda, but 
I, I also would caution people, right, uh, not to go overboard. You know, just like we do software, we build products, we build an MVP. We don't try to build everything at once because we have to, you know, figure out that product market fit, what actually works. We can get into the same problem with data. Well, I need all the data. It is a little bit of a chicken and egg concept of, well, maybe if we had more data, we could build a better product, but we need to like the product where we need to start small and iterate. Like I think with the MLOps stuff, we do need to start immediately, as you said, but also start small because we can over-engineer that just like we over-engineer anything else. And if we, if we start small, learn what's valuable, get more data, get more data. And again, we have the, at that point, the pipeline, right? In order to get that data and train the models and get them back out then yes, we can do, we can iterate on that very quickly. Yes, and I'm rigorously nodding over here for our listeners. I absolutely agree. And, and what that looks like in the world of MLOps is you build a model whose performance is, you know, meeting your business and model-driven performance metrics that you set and align with your cross-functional team, but is, you know, meeting that MVP, right, of, of metrics that we want to put out there. Um, so that's what we release with first. And then we continue to iterate and focus on the innovation side of the house for our data scientists. And their work is spent there instead of on manually updating and maintaining that previous version of the model that we can improve upon. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're never going to get it right the first time. You're never going to meet those objectives the first time, whatever those objectives are. We talked about that last time about it's really important to pick the right objective function. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we need to improve those. And, you know, we can come up with ideas to improve those and get new data. But this is the one area where machine learning has a little bit of a difference from software development. And that's the idea of, of model drift, right? In that if we build something and it collects user data and people complete the form and convert and do it pretty well it generally works tomorrow as well you know whereas the models can sometimes have drift and amanda you can probably get into a lot more detail and explain this a lot better than i can but you know that's a, a really important concept to be wary of as we you know as we do these that like even though we may have it working and the objective function is getting reasonably well tomorrow it could not right I think that's a really good point, and it, it it goes to this idea that we have to have something in order to to codify. How do we even maintain test coverage for model drift? How do we understand when to retrain the model, etc.? And I want to couple that then with this idea that if I've heard you both correctly, like the correct way to do this actually is very multifunctional. We have developers, and we have backend engineers, we have front end engineers. It sounds like we have data scientists, data engineers, all these people. At some point those data scientists must build a model and hand it off effectively, like put it into production. And I think that a lot could theoretically go wrong when you hand off these big models. I mean, you have the code, you have the model binaries, you have the data, you have the test coverage, you have, to your point, the, the model drift signals as well. How do you do that in an effective way so that the stuff doesn't just kind of fall apart as you try and hand over to the other team? Yeah, definitely. So we, we store each version of the model in a model registry. We also store off every experiment. We store the testing data, the hyperparameters that we used for that model, right? And we have that so that we can reproduce at any point in time, right? Similar concept to DevOps. We also, in order to track and, and trace in production, we set thresholds on the, the model's specific 
you know, accuracy, precision, if you're looking at RMSE or, or another performance metric that we set thresholds on and we identify the data science team if these go below a threshold of acceptability, right? But it takes time for those data scientists to get involved again and actually change and, and produce a new model that they can release. So two options, right? You roll back to your previous model version that you had that you know is working with the hyperparameters that were working. Option two, and, and likely parallel to that, you're retraining the model automatically. So that trigger is ensuring, and, and we have this concept of a model factory, which is unique to us right now, but I hope it's not as we continue to educate and share this concept with you all and, and with our clients that that model factory has the, the code, the infrastructure as code, right, to retrain, uh, find the best model for the current data that's available to us. And that could have been a reaction to model drift, right? It could have been the data drifted. There was a statistical property that changed like our mean or our variance. The concept drifted. So we're monitoring emails, right, for cybersecurity threats and our threat actors changed the way they inherently attack. Or we made a code base change and it went awry, right? So those are the different types of, of model drift that we could be combating at that point. I think that's right, Amanda. And, and I think the, the other thing we got to remember is just the being able to monitor and measure that, right? That's, you know, those signals to either retrain, deploy, get a new model, you know, or get data scientists working on a new model, those have to come from something. And that's, again, another use case to use that term or, or, or ticket or, or, or story or whatever you want to call it, that has to be done. And then again, that has to be, I think, MVP as well, right? You know, it, that can get really complicated. We got to start simple and be able to just kick those off. Uh, and then we can get more and more complicated around, you know, rollbacks or, you know, that kind of stuff. But the ability to like retrain on that uh, when, when things change, because, you know, it could be something that, that we don't know, you know, it could be customer behavior, right. Driven by some tweet, right. Or, or something like that, or some public you know, or world event that could cause some of those, uh, some of that drift. Tweet storms are real. Is that what yeah, you're yeah, about? yeah. Or, you know, it could be, you know, any type of, uh, you know, macro economic event, right. Things completely outside you know, your control. Sure. Like COVID, I mean, that changed a lot of models instantly, right? This will be forever an asterisk on every data scientist. <laughs> right, right. The challenge now, I mean, everything you said sounds wonderful. It sounds amazing. If we could only have all these systems, that, that we'd be as good as Google or Facebook or these companies. I wouldn't balance that then with what you said, Jason, which is like, look, when you're starting especially, but you don't want to overinvest. How have you tried to help our clients effectively solve this balance between all of that infrastructure, this whole model factor is amazing, and retrain automatically, have all the data, know when to do it, know whether that's good or bad, have all of the version control, the fallbacks. How do you do that without spending years and years to build it? We started this group roughly two years ago, right? The two of you came to me and said, hey, there's this really cool concept out there, and we want to know more and we want to build and, and help our clients build the right way, this way, right? Um, where we are now, our teams, eager engineers as we are, right? 
we've built out in across the large cloud providers infrastructure as code as accelerators, right? So we know that that's a problem. And how we combat that is we, we experiment and test ourselves and we invest into it early with our teams. We have over 20 folks on our team that are interested in, in doing this more or less side of desk, right? Uh, they love it. It's, it's interesting. We're learning new stuff. And now we have assets we can bring and jumpstart that process for our clients. I think those jump starts are really good. You know, it, you know, they work on most of the major cloud providers and, and it does get you up running uh, pretty quickly with something, right? And then you can iterate, you know, after that. Because it is, it is one of the, again, one of those chicken or egg problems. Like, well, we don't want to invest too much, the product might fail, but if we don't invest enough, the product will probably fail, right? And so that's a, it's a good way to get off the ground and start iterating. So, so in other words, like there is no shortcut here. There's no free lunch. It sounds like the answer is we've already put the work in. Feel free just to use it is what you're saying here. There is a lot, but you can kind of get the best of both worlds if you can leverage work other people have already done for you. So it's no different than, than DevOps. You know, there's lots of open source tools, framework. Every company has their own frameworks. They build it. I think, you know, as, as Amanda was saying, we this idea of the model factory is probably something that's fairly new that that we think adds a lot of value. But it in, in a lot of ways, these things are, are no different than than some of the DevOps tooling and, and patterns. It's just that we're way far left on the maturity curve right now. Got it. Early days. Makes sense. Well, how does it work? I mean, do they have to replace their whole stack? Does it sit on top? Like to your point, it's across the cloud, so that's good at least, and it's not on prem anymore. Uh, it's not just one provider. How, how does it actually work? What is it? What do clients do with it? It depends, honestly, where they're at already. You know, if a client is a little bit more mature, they have a CI/CD process already for their data platform. We are then taking the modules that they don't have, so model registry, monitoring, those concepts and interweaving that into their existing code base, right? A lot of folks are not there yet. So we are starting with our code base and then, as you said, iterating and customizing Jason for the that client and their problem that they have. And everyone has a different infrastructure that we're starting with and then we're customizing which tools do you select and really what I try to think about is how do I limit the number of new tools, third parties that you're working with and your, your team is working with? It's a lot at once to, to learn and understand and then own, right? And so for that, looking to more established, lower cost options that are available to get them started. We talk about monitoring and ensuring that we're keeping eyes on it. MLflow is one that we're using that's open source, right? That helps jumpstart and and get you started there. And other tools that we, you know, we've been constantly evaluating Jason and, and Vince, like many new third parties are coming to us like, hey, this is what we do. And a lot of those options, their, their cost structure, if you don't understand what they're doing is extremely expensive and can be detrimental to your bottom line and what you're getting out of of this product well i think it's a really interesting point you bring up there which is i think a lot of people will look to sort of 
closed form solutions, that is vendors who have built some prepackaged solution across the space. And the challenge that I've seen with those historically is that they make a bunch of assumptions about your stack. They make a bunch of assumptions about your application or usage. They're fairly limited in functionality. That's the nature of, to your point, Jason, they're just, we're very far left on this curve of maturity. But what you're saying is that in essence, we've solved some of that with the flexibility, the flexible nature of having an accelerator versus a closed form solution that allow people to be a bit more broad and a bit more bespoke. That must come with some downsides too. Maybe you can talk to some of that trade-off that's going on. Yeah, well, before we get to that, I mean, I, I will also say it's, a, it's modular, right? And so, you know, we can replace different components as well based on clients' needs. That's, we feel that that's pretty important because rarely does one size, you know, fit all. And so having it modular and, you know, with kind of clean interfaces between components that then we can stitch together different options is really important. The downside is that there is maintenance, right? That you, you have to kind of keep up with it versus, you know, just having a vendor push a button. But I think the outcome, it, it's cheaper, it's faster. You know, and it may be that that vendor solution is something that you, you migrate to or, or evolve to. But, you know, to answer your earlier question about like, where does it sit? I think that's important because I think a lot of times they think that these things are, are tightly integrated. They actually are fairly well decoupled, which is a good thing, right? Because the efforts can kind of go in parallel. But that doesn't mean the teams don't don't have to work together, to your point earlier about it being cross-functional, because the input of all of this is data, right? And data that those applications generally have to create, generate, or, you know, provide somehow. And so that's where those two Venn diagrams overlap is the data and, and getting it into it. But, you know, from the actual stack itself, it, it can go pretty much in parallel. So back to data-centric architectural design. Back to data-centric <laughs> architecture design. That's right. I mean, we got to flesh that concept out. I, I think our that we talked about that in the last podcast, and I think it's uh, it's something that we need to to go deeper into in a, in a future podcast. Amanda, you're coming back to Dallas again. <laughs> All right, sign me up. Well, tell me, Amanda. Like you've talked a lot about you've you've reached out to these clients. Therefore, they reach out to us depending on the situation they have some desire to move to do ML for a variety of reasons that we've talked about. There's obviously some challenges in this. How mature are they with all of this ML ops in your experience with experimentation, with model registry, with code factories, of course, that's sort of bespoke and unique to us at the moment. So maybe not there, but if you look at the rest of a DevOps, I think it's true. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Both of you can feel free. I think source control, that's basically hundred percent. Everybody has adopted that. Where are we on the ML side of this world? Everyone has not adopted it yet. Okay. <laughs> not hundred uh, percent. Right. It's definitely more, if, if we think of a maturity model of lagging, developing, advanced and leading, right? I'd say it's probably more in the developing advanced piece compared to some of the other components, right? So when we think about the model development process, right, that's pretty advanced and leading for, for a lot of organizations. Our clients have really strong data scientists, right? They build really great, strong models. It's really juxtaposed when you look at how many times they don't even have an ML pipeline. Many times these models are not even in production, right? We talk about 90% of models don't even make it to production. That's that's where many of our, our teammates are. This modular components that we're bringing in, like this is the first time for many that we're building 
in implementing a model registry, that we're talking about concepts like rollback, that we are empowering and, and teaching data scientists and data engineers to to really learn from our software engineering counterparts that are on our team. And I'll give an example, like integration testing. This is such an interesting world now <laughs> with all of our cross-functional teams. Like it takes a village, right, to ensure that in our, in our front-end testing, we're covering all of our use cases. Then all of the data that we need for the feedback loop is actually making it back to the database. We're pulling that from the data engineering side to show our product manager that that made it. We're the dashboards and such that we've spun up ensure that our stakeholders know that the model is not just going rogue, that it's you know conforming to and behaving against the metrics that we've set. So it's it's a big process to to make sure before production that we've tested with all these different groups, at least that first time around, because we're, we're also teaching. So that's a great point. And I think we will probably have to dedicate an entire podcast or two to the how do you test in these big distributed systems where in especially with things like ML is only making them more distributed. Right. And that's a really hard thing to get right because it, it like ML, it's a balance, right? You can you can test forever, right? And, or, you know, you can do no testing. Probably neither is the right answer. Um, you know, somewhere in the middle, like enough testing that you, you can validate that all of these things work together reasonably well without making a complete, you know, completely stopping uh, development. You know, you think about, I think about testing as a, a logarithmic curve, so to speak, in that at some point you can double your or triple or quadruple your testing effort with very little value added diminishing, right? returns. Yeah, diminishing returns. And so this just complicates that because it's another interconnected piece and that interconnectedness is what is hard to test. We have a lot of thoughts around that. Uh, you know, around, you have a lot of thoughts. Yes, I know, you know, around making things based on like very well-defined interfaces, right. From a testing perspective. And so, we can probably talk about that another time, but th that testing is is a huge piece that people often overlook. How do we test the integration of these models, the deployment of these models, the performance of these models, all of those things? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, and this is a challenge that we see a lot with sort of closed form solutions or software vendors who, who are in the space. To your point, you need data from a lot of sources. You need to access a lot of systems. And the idea that yours matches exactly their paradigm is often difficult unless you adopt their entire stack. So some cloud providers offer some of these services, of course, and if you're, everything is built on their cloud stack, it works pretty well, actually. But oftentimes, that's not the case. You've brought in other parties, other vendors to sit on top of those stacks, and it, it adds a lot of complications that those solutions didn't contemplate or didn't design because they're actually biased towards making you move to their whole stack. Um, so they have no real incentive to do that, economic incentive. That brings up the last point I want, to, I want to talk about a little bit, which is, you know, the spectrum of machine learning from your first model ever, you know, might be a churn model for marketing or sales, or, or it might be something relatively mundane and easily solved all the way to the scale of, you know, Meta and Google and what they do with Bing, you know, on search engine, huge hyperscale. The interesting observation here is that most of the research comes from the hyperscale companies. Those are the companies that really have the budgets to go do R&D, do deep thinking. But of course, those R&D budgets are focused around the problems facing those organizations at hyperscale. 
How do you balance being somebody who's early days with this, with what you read in the articles, what do you read in these papers, whether it be academic or not, conferences, when they're talking about, hey, well, we have you know 10,000 models we have to retrain every single day, the, the latencies are near zero, et cetera. And I guess maybe just to summarize, if you will, some points you've said today and, and other thoughts around like, what are the characteristics, if nothing else, of good MLOps? I think it's just like anything else. When we build software, we don't start by deploying it, you know, worldwide scale, many data centers across the world with auto scaling and auto tuning and, and everything else. You know, we tend to start small, grow it. When we see that it gets, you know, products get a certain, you know, critical mass, we start adding to and evaluating that. I think it's the same. I think that's one of the benefits of like the very modular approach. We can deploy the pieces that we need. We can switch out as, as certain of those pieces become not uh, the right fit for that scale. We can switch it out without changing the entire stack. And so my answer is we, we treat it just like growing anything else, start small and iterate, but I'll let Amanda go. I would add that the MLOps process that you've implemented actually frees up your data scientists to work on interesting and, and new problems less on maintenance, right? You know you've succeeded when that happens. You also know you've succeeded when a new person can come behind and pick up where someone else left off. So just as documentation is really important elsewhere, clean code is really important in software engineering, right? It's ensuring that those same principles are applied here. And I think we we also loop back to robust monitoring and, and the correct use of alerting to ensure that we are setting up triggers to to enable that for our data scientists, for them to focus on new and interesting work. The ability for someone to pick up, you know, uh, when someone leaves, that's a really important point because this is a very hot space and people leave and, and go on to other things. And without some of this scale and maturity, someone leaves, someone new comes in, it's like, where is everything? I have no idea. It's all in that guy's head. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where, that's where it went. And so that ability to be able to reproduce these things and have new people come in and just be productive is really, really important because it is a real risk of having people leave and all the knowledge walk out the door with them. Yeah. Especially in this tight labor market, which doesn't seem to be uh, changing in the near future. Especially in this space. Yeah, especially in this space. We talked about in previous pod, like this is one of the top 10 jobs in this industry for some time into the future. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for not only coming and and chatting with us today, but for all the hard work you and the team have done in building this out. It is absolutely remarkable. It's been two years uh, of of Jason and I (laughs) harassing you all to continue to push the boundaries of what's possible. I think you've done an amazing job, and I just want to thank you for that. Of course. Thank you for having me today and excited to talk about our data-driven architectural design discussion yes. in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go beat Amanda back to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, we'll let you both get out of here. Thank you again for joining us. For those who would like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at Codera.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.